Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, a cyber attack creates pandemonium at gas pumps. Black millennials beat back generational wealth and CEOs suggest business recruiters drop the four-year degree requirement. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. This week, people across the nation got gassed up following a cybersecurity attack that caused a shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline. Colonial is the largest refined products pipeline in the United States, and it's North Carolina's primary fuel pipeline carrying fuel oil, diesel, jet fuel, and gasoline. Right now, we're joined by Dr. Belinda Ships, Associate Director for the Center of Excellence in Cybersecurity Research, Education, and Outreach at North Carolina A&T State University. Dr. Ships, we're so pleased to have you with us. Can you tell us, you know, based on what we have just experienced, how prepared are we as a state for disasters like this? Oh my goodness, this is such a wake up call for us. It is a message to all of us, small business, large corporations, just even people that we are not prepared. The fact that we had to shut down, that we are paying ransomware for this, we're paying money for ransomware. Um, it's telling us that we need to do more. We need to be better prepared, we need better planning, um, all types of businesses, no matter whether you're small or large. And speaking of small businesses, black women make up the fastest growing segment of small business owners. And, and what happened uh, to Colonial was a case of ransomware. They're a large company and there was a potential to get millions of dollars out of them. We don't know the outcome or how, how things transpired, but what what I would want to ask are, are small businesses with smaller funds also at risk? And if so, how do they prioritize cybersecurity in their operations? Yes, very much so that they are at risk. Um, I would say, especially when there's uh, smaller businesses, medium-sized businesses, many times don't prioritize security because of cost. And so they don't buy... Um, buy or invest as much as they should. And what I'd say is that you have to, because you're gonna pay on the front end or you're gonna pay on the back end, as we're seeing right here. Um, Colonial, from um, my readings, have paid almost $5 million ransomware to get their systems back up and running. Um, so to me, it becomes very important that small businesses and medium business recognize that need. Knowledge is huge. There needs to be training for your employees and there needs to be knowledge, continuous knowledge. So I think that they've got it. First of all, they need a business plan, need risk analysis to see where the major problems are, prioritize those major areas. And then they need some type of plan. They need uh, business continuity plan, as well as a disaster recovery plan. Business continuity is maybe more of the proactive part of the plan, whereas the disaster recovery is more of the reactive side of it. But they need to be well planned. They need to train their employees so that, because human 
error is one of the number one problems. And so employees need to know what to do also, and they need to continuously train them. There's all kinds of things out there. The FCC has a cybersecurity link. Um, if they're low in funds and they don't have money that they can go to that site, the SBA has, has some sites out there, but on the FCC, Federal um, Communications Commission, website for cybersecurity. They have things like webinars. They have um, a toolkit where you can go out and do cyber um, analysis and set up a cyber plan for your company. If you're not, if you don't have a lot of money, I would encourage people to use those resources. So there are them. some resources out there and in the same way that a weakness was exposed in this incident, also opportunity. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little bit about what's happening at the Center for Excellence to prepare tomorrow's experts in cybersecurity? Oh, I'm very excited about what we're doing over at A&T as far as our uh, new center. It's been there for um, about a year now, and it's called the Center of Excellence in Cybersecurity Research, Education, and Outreach, CREO, as we call it. And we it's an interdisciplinary approach that we take there. We have like um, major our major thrust areas, machine learning, um, artificial intelligence, we're, but we're also putting emphasis on that it's not just technology. It's not so much, it's other things too that are part of cybersecurity. So we're looking at other areas like you think about policy, cybersecurity policy, you think about the legal part of it, think about accounting, forensics, that type of thing. And so we're going around and encouraging members from all over campus to say that cybersecurity impacts all areas, not in not just one industry. And it's not just about technologies. There's all different types of jobs. So we're encouraging people to come in. We're also trying to get more students involved as well as faculty doing research. We're trying to do uh, education. Um, to educate, we bring in high school students in the summer. Um, we just became an on-ramp university where we are um, connected with the um, National Security Agency. So sounds and like with lots that, of great opportunities across industries in cybersecurity. Yeah. So don't be intimidated by that name. There are just so <laughs> many different opportunities. Yes. Um, Dr. Belinda Ships, thank you so much for your time. You are welcome. Thank you. If you have left your home in a car this week, you have certainly seen the incredibly long lines at the gas pump. After declaring a state of emergency, Governor Cooper is now calling for calm and encouraging people not to rush to fill up. Officials say there is no fuel shortage. I'd like to welcome James Patterson, former commissioner on the North Carolina Utilities Commission and an expert in crisis management. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. How serious is this issue, say, in your area, Greensboro? What have you seen? Long lines, long lines. And, and, and many, many uh, of the uh, service stations around here have the uh, bags over the pumps indicating that they've got no gas, uh, no gasoline, I should say. And I should make it clear that there is a real difference between gas and gasoline. Which is? Uh, which is gasoline is liquid. And gas is gas. It's not, uh, it's, uh, uh, you can't see gas. Well, ordinarily you can. You can smell it because it, there's a uh, chemical put in it so that you know when it's leaking. 
but ordinarily, uh, natural gas is odorless, um, so you would not know. But um, we're not seeing a uh, lot of either one of them these days. <laughs> and uh, you know, when when we consider the root of the problem, what would you say is happening? What is at the root of what we are experiencing right now with this shortage? Well, it. Several things. One is that um, there's still a lot of old software um, being used by a lot of different companies. I couldn't tell you the exact number, um, but that's being phased out. And apparently, this software that got hacked into with Colonial was some of the old Windows-based uh, software that many of many of most of the companies used. Now, all. All of them are working hard to uh, to um, update and and guard against these cyber attacks, which you know until very recently no, nobody thought about too much. I want to say recently, you know, say the past ten years, um, and all of these um, uh, various um, energy related companies and and every company in the world um, uh, has really uh, tried to make their um, systems much more robust in order to uh, defeat these um, efforts by criminals or, or, um, or terrorist-type uh, states uh, to hack into their systems, either to cause damage to the system or to extort, extort funds or, or whatever their nefarious uh, uh, motives might be. Um, but um, I can tell you um, that uh, the... Um, the utilities here in North Carolina, I know, are working very hard um, to uh, prevent this sort of thing. But the other, the other thing is that there is little. In, in in this case, there's there's no redundancy in the system. It's a pipeline coming up from uh, the refineries down in uh, the Texas area, up the East Coast. So if you knock that one out, you stop it for some reason. You you cause the problem that we have. Um, luckily. Luckily, it was gasoline and not gas. Uh, gasoline affects us basically individually. A an attack on the gas pipelines would have affected us. Period. As far uh, as it would shut down. As far as the problem of there just being a single pipeline. Have there not been efforts to make sure that we do have some sort of a backup or a second system uh, available so that should something happen to that major pipeline, we're not tossed into a crisis? Yeah, there have been a, a number of efforts to, to build additional pipelines. Uh, it takes a long, long time to get through all of the uh, regulatory bureaucracy to get something like that done. Um, and sometimes it takes a situation like this to to uh, move things forward. Um, I, down the uh, on the natural gas side, um, there was a pipeline proposed called the um, the East Coast Pipeline, uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, I think it was called, and it was um, ab abandoned because of uh, um, environmental challenges to it. There was another one uh, coming out of the Marcellus Shale. Um, and it was abandoned here recently as well. Um, I, I think at, at, at some point, um, uh, uh, all of the powers that be that, that, that um, uh, regulate and plan um, uh, how um, our energy uh, resources are, 
are utilized in this country are going to have to come together and and think things through and uh, see what actually works and not what's just fashionable at a given point in time. Um, so once again, attention to environmental concerns, environmental justice, and also renewable energy, we just need to be focused on that and listening very carefully and seriously. Jim Patterson, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. Thank you. America's first black-owned mutual investment firm, Aerial Investments, and Charles Schwab have a new survey out that shows 30% of black investors under 40 got into the market for the first time in 2020. While it's often noted that black Americans are less likely than white Americans to have money in the market, Ariel's CEO John Rogers says, for those under 40, there's no longer a gap. Right now, I'd like to welcome to our roundtable Patrick Hanna, chair of the Corporate Roundtable for the National Black Caucus of State Legislators, Greg Hedgepath, president of Substantial Media, and Dr. Shante Williams, CEO of Black Pearl Global Investments and author of Black Angels, The Wealth Edition. Welcome to all of you. Dr. Williams, I want to start with you. How did this happen, especially during the COVID crisis? It's a pretty big statement to make. Yes, yes. Um, I, I will say this. Um, I think what COVID-19 showed a lot of black people in general was nobody's coming to save you. Um, if you aren't already doing the things to get yourself on track, you may there may be loan programs that just don't end up coming down to your community. You may uh, not be in line for some of these other programs that the government's bubbling up. So no one's coming to save you. So we started doing our own research, doing um, our own work and really starting to see, you know, we're not gonna take the slow approach or the one at a time approach and wait until we have a lot of money to invest. We're gonna start participating on all levers to make sure that we're pulling ourselves forward. Greg, you know, this really indicates a mindset shift. What does this tell us about the mindset of black millennials and their power? No, it's a great question, and thank you for having me. I would say that I think we're beginning to have an understanding that it's going to take some type of significant change in order for us uh, to at least catch up in this relay race, right? Uh, when we start to think about generational wealth and having conversations about financial literacy, it is so important that we understand where wealth is built. Uh, and, and to some degree, wealth is built in, in a couple of ways, right? Through the real estate game or, or through the stock market game, right? Uh, and that's where I think uh, we're beginning to see, uh, especially uh, the next generations of us that have that discretionary income that they can kind of put some dollars to the side or have some additional dollars that they can play around with, uh, it speaks to uh, the increase in wages. Uh, the increase in opportunities and access to, to certain jobs and opportunities where, you know, 401k plans and, and all of those things, retirement plans are there. So I think the shift in the mindset, as uh, my colleagues already said, is, is that it's an important opportunity for us to take advantage of, of beginning to at least make a couple of laps, right, uh, That's right. In, in this race. Well, that's good news. And, and Patrick, this survey's uh, message, what does that message kind of say about racial economic disparities and the conversations and actions that we've had around increasing equity? Yeah, one of the things that's fascinated me as it relates to the changing demographics, we're really at a transformational period in our country. And so a lot of the data is showing that because of technology, 
uh, the access to investing is so much easier. Uh, really, we're talking about technology and speed to market. So you've got a generation that's coming uh, in a time where uh, you can invest for a limited amount of resources in the stock market. When Barack Obama became president, the Dow Jones was only at 8,000. Today, post-COVID, the Dow Jones is approaching 35,000. So that lets you know how much growth there is in the market. But it is about education and closing the wealth gap. And so I'm delighted to see so many uh, younger people start to invest. But it's the technology, it's the platforms that are enabling uh, this growth in, in this new phase of uh, investing for, for Black America. Now, Dr. Williams, you said that no one is coming to save you. It's, it's a mindset that people need to embrace. At the same time, we understand that this is about building uh, black wealth through private and individual practice. What does this mean, however, for black ex expectations with regard to the government, and particularly with arguments for reparations? Well, I, I think... Um... No, the government's not going to come save us on their own, right? Um, but it's about accountability. I think one of the things that I'm starting to see with black women, black men, the voting population, young people, is starting to pay attention. What promises did you make when you came to my church? What promises did you make on that on the campaign stump? And now I'm going to hold you accountable. So every time I see a piece of legislation passed, I'm looking to see where I fit in and how do I access those things. Reparations, you know, comes in all forms. And uh, I don't know that we'll ever see a, a check cut directly to black Americans. But one of the things that we can start doing and demanding is car outs and cutouts in all of these very large funding bills that specifically are earmarked for our community in order for us to move ahead. He said, uh, run a few laps. We want to we want right. to turn this not into a marathon. We need to sprint. You know, it's 238 years till we close that gap. So we got to start running faster. Greg, your comment on that? Yeah, no, I did. Oh, and I, and I would also say that when we think about that 300 and plus years uh, of that baton being passed down uh, by our white counterparts, it is important that we understand that to some degree the government has a role to play in this, right? Uh, when we think about uh, what was it? Uh, I, I hate to be a history buff, but the 1868, 69, somewhere in there, where Lincoln uh, was about to sign uh, what is it? Special Field uh, Bill no Number uh, 15, uh, where we were going to get our 40 acres uh, of tillable land. Uh, and that got shut down, right? Uh, and so to some degree, as we begin to think about how we can, can at least uh, make a couple of those extra laps uh, and begin to not catch up, right? Because again, 300 years is a long time for us to be trying to uh, uh, catch up to our counterparts. Uh, we, have to, we have to understand that it's about access, it's about accessibility, uh, it's about knowledge, right? And it's about resources, right? Abs absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of education and history, <clears throat> it was George Washington Carver who said, education is the key to unlock the golden door to freedom. At the Wall Street Journal's recent CEO Council Summit, the CEO of Merck, Kenneth Frazier, said, Degree requirements are a kind of barrier to economic opportunity, as many of today's well-paying jobs do not require a four-year degree. Patrick, what, is your, what are your thoughts on this statement? Yeah, I think it's a very profound statement. You know, we grew up in an era, uh, I'll speak for myself, Deborah, where you told get a job after you get a good education. And so we went to school, we got a good education, and we started looking 
jobs. I think today's workforce is all about skills and capabilities. Uh, and it's also changing the culture. A lot of companies are looking at their core values. And if there's talent out there that have the skills and capabilities to do the work, then they're removing those barriers and hurdles. We're in a new phase in the workforce. The labor market is tightening. Uh, wages have been suppressed for a long time. But I think you're going to start to see more companies look for talent versus over educational credentials. And that really fits in with the core values of the company. I think the companies are working hard to say, you know, how do we avoid being part of this cancel culture? And so the balancing test is making sure that you have the right uh, workforce, which is the bloodline of any company, whether you're small or large business, you've got to have a workforce that, that has the skills and capabilities to produce results. But you also want to make sure that the company's values are aligned with what's going on in the world. And a lot of uh, younger uh, employees and professionals are really looking at the core values of companies. And so therefore, companies are trying to find ways to be more inclusive and not uh, let those uh, traditional academic credentials be the barrier uh, that keeps uh, people from coming to the company. Greg, I want to ask you, what do you think this means for those in higher education, in community colleges, um, and for those who might be adopting certificate programs in the future to, to remain competitive for uh, recruiting students? Well, as a professor in the higher education space, I, I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that we still see a need uh, to get that post-secondary credential. Um, I'll share that I am also uh, hopeful that it's not just lip service, right? Because when we think about the jobs of tomorrow, there is a level of technical training and skill set, right, uh, that is going to be required in order for us to meet that uh, a changing demand in the workforce. Um, I think it's going to uh, it showcases that uh, higher education uh, institutions are going to have to evolve as it relates to the products that we offer, right? Because at the end of the day, education is a business, uh, and just like any product life cycle, right? There's evolution, right? There's ebbs and flows, and so I think we're going to have to really start to think about how we tool up uh, uh, those necessary folks to ensure that they're adequately skilled uh, to serve that labor market, uh, and it may not come in that four-year degree, right? As an entrepreneur myself. Uh, I think about the time investment of four years and what that medium income looks like when I get out uh, and what that cost was for me to acquire it. Uh, and so we're going to definitely have to shift our mindsets as it relates to how we offer education and the cost of that education. Dr. Williams, do you think that there is a healthy appetite among companies to switch how they do their investing and their recruiting so that they're investing in non-traditional forms of talent? I think the, the jury's out on that just as of yet. Um, I think they're starting to see there is value in places they hadn't been looking. I think the challenge for them will be not only pulling people in the door, but you've got to retain them. And a lot of companies go forth with these very large diversity HR um, directives and initiatives and then forget the culture inside the company has to also cultivate and nurture that talent you bring in and allow them to continue to grow and thrive. And I challenge all companies really to bring in people and not, you know, degrees are important, but looking at the experience, but make sure that if you drop that degree hurdle, there's still a path from coming in at the entry level to go all the way to the CEO. Don't create a ceiling for those without education. Patrick, do you see that happening? Um, do you see that culture being built? And if not, you know, what needs to happen at companies to build a friendly culture to, um, to a more diverse talent pool? Right. Well, it starts at the top. At the end of the day, any organization's leadership matters. 
Uh, as chairman of the Corporate Roundtable, I'm proud to represent over 105 companies. Merck is also a member of the Corporate Roundtable. And our role is to make sure that we're working collaboratively with public policymakers across the country. And I can tell you firsthand uh, that companies are trying to figure out ways uh, to be more uh, inclusive and also figuring out ways to, to retain uh, uh, the workforce. But the, the challenge is that it really requires uh, a systemic uh, long-term investment. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. We've been talking about diversity, equity, inclusion for over 50 years, uh, but the conversation has to be more about transparency uh, and also opportunity, because a lot of the times when you have talent that comes in, whether they have the degrees or not, uh, I think that is a different conversation, but the really the bigger conversation is, is, is making sure that the workforce is showing, uh, is being valued, right? How do you show your workforce and your employees that you value their contributions to the company? And there's a lot of ways to do that. It can be through recognition, through, through compensation, and also for career advancement. So I think that it's a comprehensive opportunity that the private sector has to make. So if any local companies are looking for strategies, I'm happy to speak with them to talk to them about how we're working on the corporate roundtable to make sure that we are uh, providing that environment for our uh, workforce as well as for our executive leaders. Mm -hmm. That's very good information. And Greg, you know, I'm going to give you the last word. We have about a minute here. When it comes to, you know, creating that environment, what are you seeing? What do you think that, what would your advice to companies be? Well, first and foremost, we've got to get out of the deficit mindset, right? Or the fact that what we're investing in as it relates to our black communities has to be in the in the frame of educating uh, from a deficit mindset, like I said, right? You know, it's this notion uh, that we can't bring major corporations into, into the hood, for lack of better words, right? That we don't have the opportunity to skill up and tool up uh, in, in these spaces, right? Or it has to come in the form of gentrification. I think when we stop building uh, community centers and start building Fortune 500 companies in spaces where we have the opportunity to uh, uh, empower our folks to apply and, and be a part of that, then that's when we can truly begin to see a substantial uh, uh, change and impact uh, in our communities, for sure. Greg, thank you so much. All of you really appreciate your time. Once again, I want to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.